I managed to get myself a scholarship in one of the top drama schools that we had back home. And then I'd applied to my dream school, actually, which was in America, the American Academy of Dramatic Arts. And I got in, but then it was too expensive. Today's guest, Ian Nene, is a former actor, model, and public figure. Ian Nene, the ex machachari actor, Ian Nene. Later on, my mom called me and was like, OK, Ian, you need to come home. I have some news for you. So obviously, I rushed home. My mom never really talks like that. So when she does talk like that, you know, there's something up. So I went home and she sat me down and she said, oh, um, I went to hospital and I uh, just, you know, got a body scan and they found out that I've got cancer. Welcome to the Redefined podcast brought to you by The One Club, the world's first invite-only digital private members club. The ambition of this podcast is to explore the untold stories of entrepreneurs, athletes, influencers and more. We basically wanted to get you here tonight just to talk about your journey, your, your life, and definitely you, you come under that redefined umbrella, right? So, so you have definitely redefined your life. Um, I guess I'll start with the, the, the early days. So who, who was young Ian? Right, okay. So um, first of all, let me just start by saying thank you for having me here. It's amazing being around individuals who are kind of in that mood and spirit of redefining their being, redefining their existence. So feeling that I'm worth coming to a space like this to share is very honorable for me. And so thank you for having me. Um, and I'm looking forward to unpacking things that might be useful on us for all of us in our journeys in that respect. Early days. So we're talking what, when I was like, what? You know, a young, a youngin, let's say, what did, you know. What did Ian running around as a right. toddler, what, what, yeah. what was that? <laughs> Well, definitely a weirdo. Um, I was a middle child, um, and my mom always says, oh, you know, the middle child syndrome kind of was defined by me. I was like the black sheep of the family, pretty unorthodox. Um, very, very artistic in the sense that I always had a different form of expression. I always felt that I was different, you know. I always challenged things from seemingly odd perspectives that no one would probably be thinking of. and. Um, you know, I was born and raised in Nairobi, that's where I came from, and uh, lived a majority of my life there. And so my mood was very, not of Nairobi, although I lived in Nairobi. I always was exploring different spaces, exploring different cultures, and asking a lot of questions. And my mom would always often be like, you know what, tone it down, it's okay. No one needs to know that, it's fine. <laughs> um, yeah, and I could say from when I was, you know, eight, nine years of age, and started coming to my own personality. I realized I was very much inspired to express emotion or give um, a feeling of emotion to others, helping people understand a feeling or an emotion, you know, kind of what our artists do. Uh, and I did that through the medium of acting. And so acting was kind of like my escape, per se, to impress an, an emotion towards an individual. And my success would be the extent through which an individual would be convinced that that emotion was real. Uh, and so if I was doing, let's say, a monologue on stage or I was doing like a performance, I would be happy with that performance if no one claps. It was one of those ones. Um, everyone was expecting the woo at the end, but no, I wanted people to live, leave that space thinking or, you know, challenged in their existence. So I was doing that from a pretty young age, from when I was like nine, 10. Decided I wanted to become an actor at that age, and my mom looked at me and said, uh, we'll keep it real, this is not America, this is not the UK. Um, white collar jobs work best for you. 
Um, so try to figure something along that. He sh my, actually, I remember my mom saying, you talk a lot, maybe you should be a lawyer. That's what my mom said. <laughs> um, but I always was still inspired to want to give that message and have that mood. And that happened so much so to the point where every time in school, instead of me being in class, I would always be snuck out trying to do monologues and performances. And then I managed to do one randomly at an award show. And my mom actually, I remember she came in almost towards the end of my performance. So she didn't even get to see the whole thing. But then she came at the end and then everyone was doing, you know, whatever. And then a producer came up and said, hi, um, is this your son? He said, yes, yes. So we'd like your son to be on a TV show. We think he'd work well on a TV show. And obviously my mom was shocked because she was like, wait, he was just telling me he wants to be an actor and I was shutting down his dreams. And then now he's kind of manifested it in one way, shape or form. Uh, and then, yeah, I found myself involved in a lot of the evolving aspect of the acting industry in Kenya. You know, it was growing and not as big as it is in Western countries. But then, yeah, I was in it um, from, from when I was around, what, 11, 12 years to when I was 18, 19, before I left to come and study. Yeah, that was more or so my life in that sense. And so I never really had, uh, you know, most of my friends my age were like, going out and having parties and doing all those kind of things. But I was after school on set learning a script or preparing myself for a talk or something like that. So really engulfed in that world where, yeah, I just felt like I lost my childhood in one sense. But it was also good um, in me growing up and kind of figuring myself out in that sense. So there was definitely an early commitment. You, there was a, a commitment level in your mind. You, you knew that you wanted to commit to this and you were going to be dedicated to it, right? Yeah. So then obviously that led to success on, uh, for your acting, right? And I, I imagine you were recognized. Is that right? In one sense, yeah. Yeah. I, I don't, yeah. Um, it was by providence just that the show that I was in was being presented across the East African um, region. So I found myself, even when we'd go to holidays in different places, people would recognize me and oh wow, but I, I never wanted to live in the, a form of, of like, I need reverence towards me. Because, no, let's be homies, talk to me, but you can't just do that with everyone, it's not practical. But yeah, it did come with its reciprocation, of course, when you do something with passion and with love, the reciprocation is that people feel it and they get attracted to it. And so, yeah, I ended up being known here and there, you could say. Famous. <laughs> he was famous. Um, <laughs> and so, uh, in terms of, uh, obviously, that's, that, that became success, right? So, so that's what you saw as success. What was the next step for you from there? Did you see, uh, were you happy just acting? Is it, was it always just acting that you wanted to do? Or, or did you kind of have some new ideas of other places to, to visit? Right. So... I actually just wanted to carry on, just become an actor. And I remember, um, so in my, in my course of my studies and in me, in, in the, being in the acting industry, I managed to get myself a scholarship in one of the um, top drama schools that we had back home, that we have back home, it's still there. Um, and then I'd applied to my dream school, actually, which was in America, the American Academy of Dramatic Arts. And I got in, but then it was too expensive. And uh, my mom was like, okay, you know what? I understand your dreams are valid and you've done a lot, but I'm not gonna risk it from my pocket. If you had your own money, you can do it. <laughs> and so she made me 
kind of rethink, okay, how can you still achieve your desires to become a performer, but also intelligently place yourself in a way that you can secure yourself in one shape or form. And so I also had applied to study in the UK, expanded all my options. We did a UCAS program and um, I'd applied for a marketing degree at the University of Kent. And I thought, okay, maybe if I learned how to market, then I could market myself. And all these managers would probably steal my money won't steal my money. <laughs> and then I ended up getting into my dream school in the UK at the time with that kind of a mindset. So then I ended up coming here and studying marketing for three years at University of Kent, which was great and a very eye-opening experience considering the kind of marketing I'd experienced back in Kenya. The motivation there is very, very different based on circumstance, I guess, so yeah. And so did you see a new location as a new you? Did you see it as a new identity? Because obviously you left behind the acting, right? So, so you stopped that. Why, why, why did you not carry it on in London? I just felt like it would be cool to just be in a place where people didn't know you. You know, kind of if you're, if you're in a space where you're known, it's, it's in, in, in nice in one sense, but then there's an expectation of how you're supposed to be, how you present yourself, how you communicate. But I just felt like, you know, let me just be in a space where no one knows me and I can kind of redefine who I am, you know, in that sense. So give, it, give a lot of that opportunity to me to label this is who I am. And I became a wild horse as well because my mom wasn't around, so I could do whatever I wanted. <laughs> and I could party and I could, you know, you know, do all the bad stuff basically, and no one was, you know, checking over me or call my mom would try to call me and be like, no, sorry, I'm in class. And, you know, I could just run away from it. So, yeah, I got that opportunity to kind of just be myself without whatever people or without anyone else's impression externally, you know. It's a, it's yeah. a reinvention. So, you, it is. You, you become a new person. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I think a lot of people feel that way, especially if they go to uni. You know, it's, they've left their family behind and they become this new person. Uh, obviously knowing what they want to study, but they're, they're finding themselves. And right. they're, they're finding their feet in terms of how to navigate uh, an adult world, right? Yeah. Um, great. And so uh, your interest in marketing, why marketing? Because, yeah, I just felt, you know, marketing is all about convincing people that what you have to offer is better than anything else, right? And so if I could convince people that what I have to offer is better than anything else out there and they believe me somewhat, then I have a chance to profit or to benefit from that experience. So I thought that's a good course to kind of do. Although there wasn't even really much, because I was in, what, 2016 when I went to uni. There wasn't really much in, like, the academia side of things on marketing. So a lot of our stuff was focused on, like, the corporate business environment and trying to understand that. Marketing was kind of in the back burner. It was never really a main thing. But then I also tried challenging that and seeing, okay, no, what makes people become attracted to certain things? Or, or, you know, and if a, if a business-minded person is trying to, has that core understanding, then whatever field they choose to put themselves in will be successful because they know how do I get to the consumer, how do I get for that product exchange to happen, be it a product or service, etc. So I just thought it would be good for me to know that, and I was quite into it, so I did, like, the marketing psychology side of things, tried to do my own experiment, my own, you know, research, and I found it really cool, and so I thought, okay, I could manipulate people so I can get what I want. <laughs> it's, the, it's the way to be. Um, yeah, great. And then I'd like to kind of move on to your first experiences with spiritu spirituality. So, right. so why, uh, what, uh, what was it? So what, what inspired that? 
what was the first thing you saw or, or was told or yeah. what was the first? It's interesting because it's quite a huge paradox. There's marketing on one side and there's this spirituality and it was like how to like marry the two also for me was quite difficult. But spirituality really or this concepts of um, having a deeper element of understanding of the self, that's what I really define spirituality as. You're just understanding ourselves deeper. Mine was probed in a different, ex in a different way, basically. Um, I'd, so I'd finished my first year of uni, and I'd planned all these like, shows and retreats that I was going to be doing back home. Um, and so when I flew back home, I was obviously super excited, ready to do all these things. And I remember I'd actually just met with one designer who was working on an outfit for one appearance. And then later on, my mom called me and was like, okay, Ian, you need to come home. I have some news for you. So obviously I rushed home. My mom never really talks like that. So when she does talk like that, you know there's something up. So I went home and she sat me down and she said, oh, um, I went to hospital and I uh, just, you know, got a body scan and they found out that I've got cancer. And her cancer had rapidly moved. So it was breast cancer which had moved to her lungs very, very quickly. And it was just coming out of nowhere. And so that hit me out of... You know, it was like, oh, crap. <laughs> um, and the first thing that happens when something devastating like that hits is that you start meditating on all the bad things that could happen. So, you know, I was raised by my mom only, you know, um, single-parent family. My, I usually make the joke, my father went to buy cigarettes and never came back. Rumor has it still somewhere trying to find them, but <laughs> which was also good for me, but in one sense. So, didn't have him around. My mom is my provider of everything. And now she's paid for me to come to this school in the UK. And now she's telling me she's got cancer. So immediately I'm thinking, boom, she's going to die. And, uh, you know, I'm going to have to probably cancel my union and come back home and have to hustle because I've got a younger brother. And, you know, what's this and that? Your mind just goes through all these cycles of stress when stuff like that happens. But a part of it also was like, why the hell is this going on? You know, and I... Tried to like numb myself and I did loads of drugs <laughs> to kind of let me not think about it. And in that time, I was also questioning a lot about our existence. And it even changed my perspective on drugs. Not that I'm pro-drugs, but it just made me think in an alternative way. Like, what are we all here for? You know, here's this wonderful lady. She's worked her ass off for so many years, not just to take care of me and, you know, her nuclear aspect of her being, but... So many other people my mom takes care of, so many other communities, funds people, tries to help people, uplifts them, and she's getting cancer. Then I've got my uncle, one of my uncles, the most hilarious uncle of God, who's like the serious alcoholic. He drinks anything that he hears that has a percentage. And actually we got a phone call, this was a while before, you know, they found him on a ditch. And so they called my mom and was like, yo, he's passed out, he was probably drinking some local brew, he stinks like anything. They take him to hospital, the doctors look at him, they say, unfortunately, he's dead. We're there sobbing, so emotional. 20 minutes later, the guy opens his eyes wide open, <laughs> out of his sockets, and he starts speaking in English, which he never did. <laughs> and he starts saying, what, say you, say me? And, you know, we're all wondering, like, how's this happening? We're even shocked, you know, because someone's dead, and then boom, they just... And then they have, like, a body scan, and they check his body, and his liver, which I was most worried for, was perfectly fine. Every other part of his body was perfectly fine. He doesn't get sick. But my mom, who's the nicest lady, who only has like a glass of wine, you know, every other month, is getting cancer. So if there's some element of truth to this existence, if there's some sense 
something needs to make sense for me here. And so I was in this mood of inquiry of what the hell's going on. Um, and, you know, I challenged also the aspect of God because I was born and raised religious. And I'd gone to the Catholic church where I was from and I asked, you know, all these different questions. Why do bad things happen to good people? What's the goal of our existence? And then they told me, don't ask, just believe. And I was like, I'm not going to do that. <laughs> I need some answers. And in, in that spirit is where the spiritual knowledge came. And knowledge about, you know, that was answering a lot of these questions in a very, very interesting way. And so when I, you know, just probed in, this was in a temple in Nairobi. So there's a temple there. And one of my old friends who I lived with, we were in the same neighborhood. And so I knew her for a long time, but hadn't really connected much. She was slightly older than me, so she was in a much cooler crew. So I never really got to talk to her much. But she shared an interesting, insightful passage on her Facebook uh, uh, and put up a picture of this lady who was a monk herself and she was sharing something along the lines of when you uncover the layers of your being then reality starts to make sense and so I was like okay tell me what this is about so I asked and she gave me some answers and I was quite curious then she invited me to the temple and I went there and got lost in it and here we are today <laughs> amazing and uh in terms of the um, those experiences, and obviously that that makes you who you are today. Right. Did you uh, did you learn techniques along the way of of, of how to to carp, you know to, to to mentally deal with that? It, did you find solace in in uh, meditation, for example? Yeah. How did you how did you put things into motion to start dealing with? I, obviously, you wanted answers to these questions. You felt quite angry. Right. So how did you deal with that? Yeah, no, that's amazing. Thank you for that question. The, the teachings of the, the Vedic scriptures, which is where a lot of the knowledge I um, practice comes from, is amazing because it starts by looking at you from your perspective. Um, there's a wonderful book called the Bhagavad Gita, which is basically a conversation between two personalities that's kind of debunking a lot of things to do with our existence. And what set this book aside for me than, you know, um, religious texts is that with some of the texts, they talk about, oh, God is so great and you're so down and so you should turn up to God, and ah, which is valid in one sense. But then the Bhagavad Gita started from a battlefield. And this guy known as Arjuna in distress in this battlefield. And it's explained that actually we are this Arjuna in this battlefield of life. And if we introspect in our own existence, we're going through a battle. Life is a battle. There's so many things. Waking up in the morning at times is a battle. You know, doing a job we don't like is a battle. We, so many battles that we're facing. And so the teachings kind of make you start working from your perspective. So it shifts. What's my field of existence? And what direction am I trying to get to? So how best can I get there? And for us to kind of introspect and deal with the self... You want to be in the self, you know, um, and that's where meditation really comes in, where you kind of block all extraneous variables and just focus on being, you know. I always say, you're always having a conversation in your mind, isn't it? Even as we're all hearing right now, I'm chatting, but your mind's also chatting, and you're having a chat with that chat, isn't it? And it's kind of always going on. And so there's some power in sitting in that chat and experiencing how that chat happens the frequency of how your mind is moving, what, 
how you can even separate yourself from your mind. It's, it's very, very profound. And so I started doing this mantra meditation in a bid to be, because we're always focusing on becoming, but we rarely be. And so meditation really forces you to be. And it's something that's also quite scary for people, you know, um, to just be in the self and just revel there. So I started practicing meditation, specifically mantra meditation, where you use certain vibrations to just channel in the element of the self. And then from there, a lot of things became clear. You know, um, even with my mom's circumstance, I, I look at her situation as a blessing in my life. I always tell her that and she gets like, you know, giddy about you, upset about it. But I'm like, no, really, that was a blessing because it, it probed me to have to look at the world from a different angle. It's that amazing saying, you change the way you look at things, the things you look at begins to change. Um, and so I got a lot of peace in understanding a lot of what's going on in the world a lot of understanding of how the world's working and how the world should work and how we can marry the two like that. So a lot was gained in that respect. Fantastic. And moving back to the UK with this experience, how was that transition? So obviously you, this is, these are all new discoveries for you. Right. Moving back to London, busy London, how, how was that for you? Yeah, actually, it's, uh, so I wasn't in London yet because I was still at University of Kent in Canterbury, so I was still quite away. Um, but I remember, so when I started getting into it, my mom was obviously upset with it because it's a natural for her. She's like, what is this? You know, you hang around these monks wearing, you know, wearing bed sheets, walking around the streets, like, you know, hang around people who have jobs, you know. But then I started kind of like getting into it more and more. And then she thought, you know what, let me cut his finances because she was managing all my finances at the time. So let me cut his finances. And he knows he can't leave the house and just stroll down the street like any other person. He's gonna not be able to get to the temple. And so I had to look for ways. Okay, how can I get the temple? So I tell her, mom, I wanna go to the club. It's my homie's party. And so I'd still get to go to the club. She'd give me some money to go to the club. I'd keep my money, spend everyone else's money. And then the money I had, I'd use it to go to the temple. And so one evening, I remember I came back from the temple with all these books and, you know, there was incense, some smelling of incense and all this curry that I was eating. And then I walk into the house and my mom is standing right in front of me. I didn't think she was going to be there. And she asks me, where were you? And I was like, oh, just hang out with my friend. And, you know, and she was like, really? Smelling of this kind of curry? You think I'm dumb? <laughs> and so she immediately clocked that, oh, he's going to the temple, he's getting literatures. And so she went online, booked the next flight for me come back to the UK and she was like you go back to London go back to the UK you won't find those weirdos there but then I came back <laughs> and I found them here because <laughs> they're actually everywhere and then yeah um, so I'd marrying the philosophy of spirituality in this kind of an environment which I thought would be was actually a privilege in one sense you always get like your monks or your spiritualists isolated from society right and you, every time when you think about a spiritual monk you're thinking of a yogi in their robes far away in like a cave you know and then you think of materialism then you think of London <laughs> or all these other towns but then I was in this position where I was having to live in this kind of a space but have the mentality of a monk in you know in like the Himalayas or something. So how marrying that was a fantastic and very fun experience till today. Um, you know, just uncovering the psyche of how individuals work and marrying that with what we understand about the self. It was pretty cool, but also very scary, you can imagine, because it was very un unnatural in one sense, but yeah. Absolutely, and so did you find it, um, 
obviously I've, I've spoken about reinvention. Did you find that you were taking yourself into this new journey or were you leaving part of yourself behind? Was it you that was a part of this? Was it? Right, oh, oh, oh that's a good quote. <laughs> Interesting. I think we all, we're always evolving, isn't it? Like, what makes you who you are right now is a combination of all the stuff, even the stuff you didn't like, painted you to be the person that you are today. So when I think about that question, I kind of think, no, I'm the same person, just evolved in a different, with a different vision, with a different perspective, with a different angle of, you know, of looking at life with, you know, just a different lens. Um, but it's the same me who was, you know, back home in Nairobi at some point thinking, oh, I can't wait to be an actor like Will Smith, yeah. Um, you know, and get myself into that industry. But now that's evolved and the same passion and drive is there, but it's just been translated in a different way now. Because now instead of me thinking, how can I be famous? My meditation now has been, how can I serve? And so the same energy and zeal that was trying to strive for fame is now trying to strive for service. And so I don't feel like I've changed in that sense, but I've evolved to the same me in that sense, like that. It's still you, but the energy has changed. Yeah. It's, it's focused in different areas. Exactly, how I'm driving it, how I'm directing it, like that. Yeah. Absolutely. And so in terms of your work that you're doing now, so working in London, how have you brought your findings, your spirituality, into the workplace? Tell right. me what that looks like. Yeah, so basically what happened is after graduating from uni, I decided, okay, I'm going to invest some time. So this was in 2019 when I graduated. And so I thought, okay, this philosophy, a lot of trippy stuff happened, which I, I don't know if you have time for, I could probably share. Um, share it. <laughs> but um, a lot of things happened, and I felt, yo, there's some validity in this wisdom. Would it be wrong for me to take some time to really understand it? You know, everything that we know and that we're fully confident in, we've taken time to invest into it, be it a business, be it a strategy. And so I thought, okay, you know, my mom's not gonna be happy with this because she's just spent 60,000 pounds on me getting a degree and then I'm about to tell her, okay, I'm gonna pause that for a while and become a monk for three years. And I remember the first thing she told me was, okay, then reimburse me. <laughs> <laughs> because I was expecting something from this. I invested in you, now where's my, you know, Give me something back. Give me my 60K back. Um, and so I did, and then, by then I decided, yeah, I'm going to move into the temple. So I lived as a monk um, from 2019, just before COVID happened, till after COVID was done. Um, and I got, had that, those three years, which was actually a blessing in one sense, because um, everyone was forced to go into their homes and kind of go within. You couldn't go outside, so you had to go inside. And inside was scary for many. But I was fortunate that I got to be in a monastic space. I was in 85 acres of land. We had like 60 to 80 cows and the most chilled vibes ever during the most stressful time of, of the world. And I could just focus on me. <laughs> and so I did that and meditated on that and learned this philosophy and these teachings. And obviously there was a lot of pressure because all my friends were now like into the world, you know, and I got to meet people like Akshay and I was like, oh, guys are out here like actually doing stuff with their time. Look at me, I'm, I've just spent three years as a monk. What am I going to show for it? And then it just hit when I moved out the temple, everything just started like piecing itself up. And it made me understand when you invest in that which does not give you immediate, tangible, material result that's actually focused on your being, 
then the universe has a fantastic way of kind of piecing those things together for you to achieve that element of your being while simultaneously being sustained. So yeah, I moved out, um, found myself living in Notting Hill, <laughs> found myself a full-time job, and all these opportunities started like coming up and people who are inquisitive to understand this knowledge. And so I felt, whoa, actually, I can be in London, you know? And London's a fun place, actually. It's an amazing place. Uh, obviously very difficult for, you know, in, in many other aspects, but an amazing place. And so I felt, whoa, being in, in the temple kind of prepared me for this journey in a way that is quite serendipitous. You know, nice things are happening, they're piecing themselves up. And then I get to connect with amazing like-minded people. Look at me, I'm sat here with, with you today. Um, it pieces itself after investing in yourself spiritually or investing in yourself internally. And yeah, and I see myself, you know, now maneuvering this London um, in a way that I'm bold and confident in my values. I don't feel like I'm going to be swayed per se by the world. I feel like I'm confident to invest something that's useful for the world to have. And I can still have fun. <laughs> so it's, it marries everything together nicely like that. I hope I answered your question. <laughs> uh, you, absolutely. And, um, great. And I, I, I guess I'm interested to hear what advice you would have. Mm -hmm. So if someone's looking for something in terms of something that uh, they may be embarrassed about doing or if they feel that it's not for them, what advice would you give to, to that person? Right, I'd say 90% of the time, no one actually cares. Yeah. Um, there's this wonderful quote I remember hearing, and the person was saying, I don't remember who it was, but they were saying, you reach a point in life where you realize that you're not the main character in other people's movies of life other than your own. And so you actually realize people don't really care about you as much as you think. So you can invest in yourself. And it really it hit me. I, I just signed up to the gym like a couple of months ago. I started going to the gym. Yeah. <laughs> and I've still kept it up. <laughs> so I'm like, yeah. And I went to the gym and, you know, I'm, a, I'm a quite a weakling. I'm not like your guy who like knows what he's doing. And 90% of the time I don't know. I Google something and I get there. And I'm hyperventilating, thinking, okay, what am I supposed to do with this? And, and you know, I spent a lot of time worrying so much about how other people saw me. Then I just woke up at some point and realized, actually, no one cares what I'm doing. They're busy focusing on their own reps. And so you can focus on what you're doing. Then I decided to take classes because I thought that would work better for me. Um, but the point being that um, you should, that time that we invest in thinking about what other people will perceive us as, or you know, the time we spend thinking about how other people view us, we should invest that time on viewing ourselves. You know, um, and it's a, it's, it's a, it's, I think it's a privilege to get that ability because a lot of our jobs, a lot of our, our career journeys and goals in life are very much dictated by the response of other people, isn't it? You know your business is flourishing when you have increase in sales, which is dependent on others. You know, um, your relationship is flourishing when your partner, who is somebody else, is satisfied in multivarious ways. So you know, you kind of taking a pause from that and looking inward at yourself and kind of doing like a, a unique cultural lens on who you are and understanding how you make the decisions you make and what matters to you as an individual. 
you become more confident and clear about okay, what offering or contribution am I gonna give into the world? You know, so it's like you know, like that class when you you've done your studies and you know you know you're gonna ace the test. You don't go into that test worried, isn't it? You're a little bit more confident. I read for it. I know all the points. I did all the practicals. So similarly, if you understand yourself, you know all your points. You know all your practical applications. Then surely you'll know how to get the best grades in whatever space you put yourself in. If you're not just trying to chase money or trying to chase corporate success or trying to chase these things which, you know, you can manipulate materially, which is possible for everyone if you've got the brains for it. If you're not trying to just chase that and you're trying to chase something that's more valuable to you as an individual that makes your heart tick, that will drive you to, do, to go through to the extent of breaking whatever barriers you need to break to reach that goal because it matters to you. And so we need to put that value and investment within ourselves. You know, meditate. I will tell people, and meditation just doesn't mean sit like a yogi, you know, and chant on some beads. No, take that time to just focus on yourself. I'm reading, um, so I was talking about the unique cultural lens. It's a concept created by this guy called Zaldivar. And basically says, if you understand yourself, fully on, and he uses 10 variables, he uses gender, he uses heritage, etc. If you break down yourself in these ways, you can realize what your actual attributes are as a being. And so you'll, whatever space you enter, be it a new job or a new career, you'll know what good you're going to invest into it because you've had a full understanding of your capabilities like that. And then also from a spiritual angle, we're told, find an intensity that suits your personality to blossom in this reality. And that can only be done if you're being true to yourself. And so invest in yourself like that. It's the best self-care, if you ask me, focusing internally on you like that. Absolutely. And it's, it's working out what self-care is for you as well. Mm. Um, I think for me, self-care was going to the pub. Like that was a, a big right, thing, right, and then right. I'm, you know, <laughs> really looking after myself here. Yeah. Just going then you realise, <laughs> yeah, um, and and then they find new ways of actually where it's constructive, and you you feel the benefit as opposed to a hangover. You know, right, right. Um, taking the time out just to sit with your thoughts. Right? Exactly. And so actually listen to the, what's going on in the head yeah. as opposed to blocking it out. I like that. And, you know, because you talked about self in that sense, it's probed something in my mind. We're going to do a mini experiment, just me and you. And you guys can all observe. Touch your nose, please. Your ear. Touch your lip for me. Touch your knee. Touch your shoulder. Touch yourself. Interesting. <laughs> I would have challenged others to probably do this. I probably should have made it up, you know, an open thing as well. Some people will touch here. Some people will do this. I've had people who do this, you know. Some, everyone will have, you know, I'm this. Who is the self, you know? So when we're talking about real self-care, who is the self? From a, you know, a much more spiritual understanding, that inner voice that you're having that chat with, you who's having that chat, that's the self. You who, when you're depressed, is having those you know, thoughts of what should I do and you're going through that conundrum within, that's the self, you know, who then makes a choice to go to the bar to kind of clear out and call that other stuff self-care. That's the self. Who's making those active choices? Your mind is kind of like a monkey and not just any monkey. It's like a drunk monkey. A drunk monkey that's been bitten by a snake and is being haunted by a ghost. It's always going 24-7. But then you as the self, 
you choose, okay, out of all these weird thoughts in my mind or some very intelligent ones, which ones am I going to tap into, isn't it? You know, you, you make an active choice. I'll focus on this thought of my monkey mind. So that self should be experiencing the self-care. And so that's where meditation should actually begin from, from that angle, like that. Yeah. Fantastic. I'd like to kind of talk about the trust you work with. Right. How does that translate to, to work life for you? Right, yeah, so I, yeah, I was quite blessed with this opportunity to, to work in community development for a trust. It's an amazing trust. It owns around 12, 13 schools. It's ever-growing and owns a retreat center, owns a restaurant, and it's very much focused on establishing people's independence, not on a material basis, but also on a self basis, and adopts a lot of the principles from... Um, from some of the spiritual concepts that I ended up learning as a monk in the temple. And it's an amazing organization because it's marrying a lot of that ancient knowledge but applying it in our world today. Because these are schools. We've got around 700 kids minimum, you know, in each of our schools. And we're cultivating and molding these kids. And if you see them, it's just, it's amazing. You know, getting kids who are giving you their independent perspective and they can draw out all these other variables. They're being the kind of selves we would have wanted to be when we were younger, you know? There's a lot of stuff you'd have wanted to say when you were young, you couldn't, right? But it's breeding individuals to have this kind of, probably breeding is not the best word, but it's cultivating these individuals to probably have that kind of a mindset. And now they've put me on board to work with their community team, which is basically seeing everyone who's working as a member of staff in this space, how are they also getting nourished in themselves? So it's amazing just how, you know, this role and me coming out the temple kind of magically, you know, married and I'm seeing, I'm doing a lot of studies of how organizations work, how companies, you know, you've got your transformative companies like your Googles and you've got your transactional companies like your Amazons and how are they, you know, all, working with certain elements or principles to get their goals you know, met and, and then seeing how we can apply some of these principles on different levels for different organizations, for different schools, for whatever job it may be and make it run as effectively as possible you know, and kind of guide them like that. So I'm, that's my role at the moment, which is very much connected in one sense. And I'm sure you're very valued in the workplace. So you, you can offer your, your advice and, and obviously you're coming from a different angle. You know, it's a very unique experience, the one you've had. Mm -hmm. So having that within the workplace, I just think is, is fantastic. Um, we all need an Ian in the, in the workplace. I hope. <laughs> and that's my marketing degree, guys. <laughs> if you all need an Ian, then I did it right. <laughs> Great. And um, I guess we'll, we'll open it up to some questions to the audience. If, if anybody has any questions, we'd love to hear them. We have one at the back already. All right. Okay. Hello. Time in 
psychological education, but also your spiritual education. And I was right. being coached, teachers already do that. They're like, I just want to learn coding, I just want to learn X, Y, Z, but not spiritual, not about themselves. Exactly. I think people should really spend time to that because we are far more than our name, mm. our body, our job, or we, we are the humans, we're everything. So thanks for sharing your insights. Yeah. No, for sure. No, thank you for sharing that. It, as, as I, you know, I, ex I explained that thing about the movie, you know, you're, you're all like main characters in your movie, right? And you're going through this movie of life. And this is probably scene 76 out of how many others. And now you're sat in this building hearing this guy speak, you know, and you're kind of viewing this world in that way, isn't it? And so if that's what a lot of the things that you're doing is dependent upon, then surely if you were to invest and cultivate time on that element of your being, there must be some result that should come out, out of it, isn't it? You know, it just, for me, it just made the most logical sense. You know, some people say, no, I don't have time for it. But you've got time for everything else. You've got time for everything outside of you. You don't have time for you. <laughs> Doesn't make sense to me, isn't it? So, yeah, it's important, you know, and... I guess maybe there's also a connotation with spirituality that's probably not had the best rep, especially in like the corporate field. And I'm very inspired. I was having this conversation actually with a few people. How can we marry the teachings um, of these kind of principles on understanding the self with how the world is? And actually, if you're to study the Bhagavad Gita, you can see how the Bhagavad Gita can give you the same framework that it takes to start a business, you know? It actually, it, it's almost synonymous. The same thing when you're, when you're trying to get yourself into a new market, you know, and you're trying to, open, you're trying to monopolize the market, right? You, the same kind of strategy that you'll go through understanding the field is the same thing the Gita explains, you know, understanding your variables, what, you know, doing your SWOT analysis, you know, and all these kind of things. It's actually all there in the self as a spiritual being. You're doing the exact same things in yourself almost automatically. We just don't talk about it. You know, and so we need to popularize that and, you know, everyone should take advantage of it. I feel like if kids, maybe from a young age, if we start be to teach them to meditate instead of just punishing them when they make a mistake, if meditation was more a, a tool to help you deal with the self rather than a fine or a mistake when you, when you do something wrong, we'd probably have, you know, a, a different element of consciousness permeating this universe. But because we're always still very quick to be like, okay, no, it's either you do good, you get this, you do bad, you get this, or, you know, and no, shut down your emotions, present yourself good. Coming to London, one thing I learned is when someone tells you they're all right, they're not all right. And every time you ask them, how are you doing? You're right, I'm all right, 99% of the time. And then once I asked a guy, really do tell me, how are you doing? And then two seconds later, his eyes welling up with tears. And then boom, he just explodes to all this thing. Give up the facade, give up the act. No one really cares. No one's watching the act. They'll care about you when you invest in you like that. So thank you for sharing that. I appreciate it. That's amazing. Yeah. Thank you. Any other? Yes. Hello. What do you think is more important than like, sorry, can you hear me? Yeah. What, what's more important now kind of increasing the secular individual fight as well? Do you think it's love between people or self-love? That's a great question. That's a good question. Yeah. <laughs> I would, yeah. Um, I would say both. But, you know, as RuPaul normally says, if you can't love yourself, how the hell can you love anybody else? <laughs> Isn't it? I always take that. That's, that's a very, very powerful point. A lot of it is rooted from the self. 
you know. And also so much so in the point of not even just loving yourself, but understanding yourself. You know, we, uh, when I was the, the, a monk in the temple, you get all these people who would, you know, come and say, oh, please get me blessed, give me blessings. And then when I challenge them and ask, what blessings do you want? They can't tell you. So, you know, it's like, oh, no, please bless me, please bless me. And oh, what blessings do you want? What prayers do you want me to give for you? They can't tell you because they haven't even figured out who they are. So what are you asking for? You know, you're going to, if you're going to a job and you're trying to, you know, present yourself in a corporate space and you're just trying to fit the box of the prerequisite that they've given. But then also a proper employer is not going to look at that. They're going to look at what extra thing are you adding to the table. And that's what sets aside who gets employed, isn't it? So I think the issue really stems from people not really loving themselves or not even knowing what that means. And then from there, if they get that understanding of the self, then they can love others because everyone wants to love. You know, I say all this stuff we do is because we want to revel in loving exchange with those we care about. You hustle so hard, you know, all these rappers talk about they hustle so hard, get mama out the streets, get all their homies, you know, in luxury cars because they love them. It's all based on the basis of loving exchange. So we're all really in the nature of our being trying to give and receive love. We just don't know how to do it right. But if you channel in and understand how to love yourself, then you'll know how to give love to somebody else in a way that they'll feel like, no, what's your name? Sam. In a way they'll feel like Sam actually loves me. He's not just doing it because the world is saying it, but he's doing it because he does, because he's aware of himself, and so he's actively investing in me. Then your relationships have more quality. Your relationships have more depth. You know, it, just, it stops becoming like a, you know, the casual chat in the bar kind of a thing. Then your relationships has to have meaning, and you'll notice when you have that kind of a mentality, those in your close circle, conversations don't start the same. You know, they'll change. You'll be picking them up from deeper angles, deeper levels. But that comes from self-love, number one. So that's how I'd answer that, if that helps. Self-love, then love of others comes automatic. Yeah. Thank you. Thank Great. you for that question. Yes. Oh, interesting. An easy question. Yeah, well, <laughs> in many ways they're connected. Religion in its core means the knowledge, the understanding, and the loving of, divi of divinity. It comes from the word religi. Religion as we know it today is not the knowledge, understanding, and loving of divinity. It's follow these things that we do that's superior or better than what other people are doing. Come my way and you'll achieve a better result. And so there's always an element of competition. But in its core, it's supposed to teach you how to know, understand, and love divinity. And you being a divine being in relation to the actual world. Spirituality, I break it down using three words. Understanding that you're a spiritual being, then using certain rituals to transform your reality. So it still dives back to who am I in relation to the world. So in its core, I'd say there's no difference. But obviously, for many of us, we've been scarred um, by the, you know, the different activities that are going on in you know, what we term as our more popular religions. I fell victim to abuse in a religious space when I used to be in the church. You know? And so obviously, that scars a lot of people. As soon as you say religion, it's like, mm -mm, I don't want to hear about that. But there's a lot of tools that it's got that's very valuable, that's very useful. So I say an intelligent person works like a bee. You know what the bee does? It will go into the crevice of the, of the flower, 
and fight all these things to get the nectar and sucks out the nectar. So I tell people, I don't shun away from religious practices. I, I consider myself even better Catholic, you know, or better Christian. Take the principles that will work well to transform your life, then use that to make you a better version of yourself. Don't ignore it, there's a lot of power there. If they've been able to run and you know, be one of the richest organizations in the entire world, surely they're doing something right on some level. So what can you grab like a honeybee or from the, or, you know, yeah, the nectar that you can kind of get from it and use that to better yourself. And I see a lot of the intelligent people doing that. You know, Bill Gates would mention how he used to pass by, you know, the Hare Krishna food stand and eat their food because he knew it was going to transform his being. You know, I know other celebrities, you know, even in private spaces, obviously, because they don't expose it because of their brand, which is understandable, who are really taking advantage of these practices, taking advantage of these philosophies. And a lot of people, your upper echelon, know a lot about this. You know, they just don't say it because, you know, you ever go into like a business meeting or, or like a, a talk where a big CEO is about to tell you guys 10 tips on how to become more successful because I was successful. And then they'll tell you, don't take no for an answer. We've been there, heard that, you know. Um, be determined. Wake up and make your bed. They'll give you the exact same things you've heard a thousand times. But will they actually tell you what they did for their circumstance? No because it was unique to them in a particular kind of way. So find what's unique to you in that sense as well. And then you probably will spend more time, less time on those kind of spaces where you're just being given tips, the same thing over and over again, and you'll be the one advising people based on you understanding yourself and helping them do the same thing. So that's what actual religion and spirituality should do for an individual, not trap you in a box of follow this and you'll be this, you know, not that. And we're not, we're not for that. I said, no, not for me. <laughs> yeah. I'm sold. Uh, anyone else? Thank you, though. Thank I think we've got question. time for one or two more. Yes. I've heard your question. You've asked from a spiritual mind, how do you, um, or how do I approach it? Yes. Like me or me when I deal with it. Like if someone comes at me, what do I do? <laughs> no, 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 no. Okay, I get you. I get Mentally. You. Yeah. Um, it's interesting actually because I've noticed how for me that's changed in very, very many ways. You know, old me would be bitching about you to everyone I met. You know, and we'll be trying to see how can I destroy this person who's done this, this, and this to me. You know, if I know anyone who's next to them, nah, 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 you can't be. You know that? Ah, oh, come on. You know, you're better than that, bro, Mark. You know, and you'd you'd be trying to tarnish them. Now, when I approach conflict, obviously because you're working on this basis of the self, and because you're always introspecting on yourself, you're not just seeing your pros; you're also seeing your cons. You're understanding that you're also prone to fallibility. And you're also prone to making mistakes. The scriptures explain that there's four aspects of our being that come with us automatically as soon as we're alive. Number one is that you've got imperfect senses. Your senses will never perceive the same thing perfectly. We're looking at this figure over here, someone who's looking at it from that angle, and us will have totally different perspectives, right? 
We've got imperfect senses. And so at times, number two, our senses will be prone to illusion. Because of illusion, automatically, number three, we're going to make mistakes. The difference is, number four, to cover those mistakes, we cheat. So we've got these four things. Imperfect senses, illusion. Make mistakes, cheat to cover it up. Now, when you're truthful with yourself and you understand your fallibility, when you see someone acting in a fallible way, you have compassion, you know? Um, immediately, naturally, that's the first thing that hits, which I even um, in other circumstances you never have. If someone bumps you on the street, the first thing you'll be like, yo, wh what are you trying to do? You know, imagine me, you know, someone knocks me on the street, you're like, I'll just walk away, because what can I do? <laughs> Nothing. But, um, <laughs> you, know, if, you know, but when you're having this kind of a mindset, the first thing that probes when it comes to my mind is, what's that person going through? And how can I best alleviate that anxiety for them? If I just have to keep quiet, I'll keep quiet. If I need to ask them, if, is, uh, is there a way I can be of service? I'll be of service, I'll attempt. And so you, you, you change how you approach conflict from a place of sincerity and honesty, you know? Because in conflict, you're always trying to prove a point, you know? It's always trying to prove a This you can all relate to. Ever had an argument with someone? You guys are going back and forth. No, 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 no. Boom, he throws it back at you. And you're going back and forth for like 20 minutes. Then you pause and you realize, I'm actually wrong. Ever had that moment? You know? But what do Every we, day. Right? Yeah. And then what do we do? You'll never admit that you're wrong, but you'll wait for all the moments to kind of run away from that situation, isn't it? Like, oh, yo, yo, someone's calling me, wait, wait, give me two seconds. Boom, boom, that conversation, which lasted two seconds, lasts three hours, and I can get myself out of there. To not kill my ego. But when you're of an understanding mood, you know, you'll appreciate, no, no, I'm actually wrong in this situation, isn't it? And you're actually right. And it's okay that you're right. There's nothing wrong with me being wrong. And so when someone approaches me or I get into conflict with someone, it's okay. You know, we all make mistakes. But how can we work on this so that we don't have this experience again? You know, and so that we can still um, maintain an element of trust. And then I leave that situation even if I know you played me. No problem, you played me. But now I'm wiser. Because next time I see you, bro, I'm maneuvering, isn't it? But I'm still giving you my love. And, I, and, and if you come to me, I'll still want to serve you because I actually love you. One amazing thing about spirituality is that it makes you really love people and not just people you're connected with, but everyone. I always give this challenging question. If you're in a burning house and you have a relative you can't save upstairs, but you've got people you can save downstairs, how many will still try to run up to their relatives? Most of us will, if we're honest. But when you become more and more integrated with that kind of understanding of all of us being spiritual beings, having a human experience together, I will run for whoever I can save because there's actually no difference. But that consciousness is not an easy one to just logically put. You have to actually live it. And how you live it is by diving in. And when you dive in, you can deal with conflict like that easy. You can deal with life easy. Any corporate shark trying to maneuver you, you can jump over them easy. And I've seen it happen. It's possible like that. That's how I would deal with it, if that helps. <laughs> Thank you. I think that's probably a good place to, to end it. Thank you so much to Ian Nene. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Redefined podcast. We want to bring you the best stories from the top change makers across the globe. To make that possible, please subscribe to the podcast wherever you are listening and leave a comment or review. It really is that simple. Thank you again for listening and we'll see you for the next episode.